I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to my podcast, Conversations of Inspiration. Founder of Not On The High Street and Holly & Co., I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. And my dream is to help everyone start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the greatest way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to all my favourite small businesses, acclaimed entrepreneurs and those who just simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to our sponsor NatWest, who have helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Welcome to my first conversations of inspiration live in partnership with NatWest. I wanted to take this podcast on tour and share the magic of these inspiring conversations with you all to hear firsthand these incredible entrepreneurial stories. I believe one conversation has the power to change the course of your life forever and I want it to be mine. Recorded last Friday in London, the evening was so special and will be one of the highlights of my life so far. My guest, Thomasina Myers, founder of Oaxaca and winner of MasterChef, was utterly inspiring. I was blown away by her honesty, drive, her passion for pushing the world forward, using her business as a force for good. Tickets are on sale now for our Bristol and Manchester events, which are the next dates on our nationwide tour. So don't delay if you want to join me for my next Conversations of Inspiration Live. Welcome to my very first podcast live, where we're here in this beautiful venue, sitting under the neon light, which says our Holly & Co motto, do what you love, love what you do. Our colourful flags are hanging high above our heads, each adorned with the famous quotes from our podcast. The candles are lit and the stained glass windows are casting a magical light over tonight's event. Thank you everyone for joining me on such a special night and thank you again for NatWest for believing in conversations of inspiration. I cannot wait to bring onto stage my first ever podcast live guest and it couldn't be anyone more inspiring. I know you'll be blown away by her miraculous story, her honesty, her journey, really using her business with her values for creating a better world. Thomasina's journey has not been easy. With a 10-year spell of depression, it was a chance meeting that set her on the path to happiness, founding a business doing exactly what she loved. It was whilst travelling around Mexico, her love affair with food really took shape and her discovery of a cuisine she'd never tasted back home in the UK. It was at this moment she decided to bring authentic Mexican cuisine to London. She's went on to win the BBC's MasterChef, giving her the confidence to found her Mexican Oaxaca restaurant chain that currently stands at 25 sustainable restaurants in London. Thomasina is also the author of seven cookbooks and her latest copy, Home Cook, is available to buy tonight and she'll be signing at the end of the evening too. So how lucky are we to have her here tonight 
welcome Thomasina. I like these cushions. They're yeah, wonderful. yeah. I have a slight little thing for birds. That's that that can be said. Well, thank you so much for coming this evening, and thank you for joining the podcast live. So this is the first one I've done. So I really hope this is how it's done. For anyone can give me any tips. We're the guinea pigs. We're the guinea pigs. <laughs> this is it. So thrilled, Thomasina, to have you here. I know this episode is going to be very special one indeed. I've been a huge fan of yours since watching you on MasterChef back in 2005 and have now the pleasure of eating at Oaxaca with my son on our days out in London together. First of all, I'd love to start with your story, where this mission for food, for cooking came from. Your mother was an excellent cook. Yeah, she loved cooking. We did everything around food, really. We always sat down and had supper together, lunches at the weekend. It was always fun. I mean, there wasn't, you know, my parents weren't rolling in it, so it was always quite simple, but it was always made into really kind of a fun thing. So we'd have sandwich making competitions at the weekend and I'd always stuff mine with as many different things as possible until they were so fat that I could hardly get my mouth around them. Or, you know, if there was a birthday treat, my father would whiz off to a butcher and buy a fillet steak or something and we'd cook it at home. It was, it was always kind of home cooked, but just with people around the table and, and kind of fun. And I read that at 14 years old, you used to cook for your parents' friends' dinner parties. Is that true? What type of things did you cook? I mean, literally, I'd make anything, because food was so fun. I was not very good at playing with toys when I was growing up. I found it quite boring. And my brother and sister were so creative. They could, you know, spend hours looking for four-leaf clovers and a you know, lawn. And I'd be like, oh, so fun boring but somehow in the kitchen there was a million things to do and I would just kind of pour through my parents very slim collection of cookbooks and you know it was just a place where you could just create stuff and, and just play around and and and, and make things and, and normally make things that made people feel good you know you got you, you definitely got the praise I think most cooks are slightly addicted to that thing where you if you feed someone the pleasure you give, you know, you can see it when people eat your food. Yeah. And, and it's a really wonderful feeling, giving pleasure to other people. It's slightly addictive. So I think I got into that quite early. And then, you know, age 14, I'd do anything for cash because, you know, frankly, <laughs> my pocket money was, you know, almost non-existent. So, you know, I, d I discovered that I could cook for a living. And so, yeah, I would go and do anything that I could discover. I was always trying different things and seeing what I could make. And you actually made quite a little a living for yourself, didn't you? It was quite, you were quite popular with your friend, your parents' friends. Yeah, no, it was good. It was definitely good. It was, also, I just enjoyed it. I, I loved it. I, was, I also was quite precocious, so I had massive crushes on all my parents' friends. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I did like hanging out with grown-ups. I, I, I was kind of a weird child. I used to love sitting on a park bench with a kind of 80-year-old and say, what's the meaning of life? You know, and they'd say things like, life's a journey. And I'd be like what does that mean? <laughs> you know, you don't understand what things like that mean until you're older and you go through stuff. And then you're like, oh yeah, life is a journey. But you know, when you're eight or six yeah. or whatever, you're like, what, what does that mean? 
your entrepreneurial spirit was strong then. I think we're often told that it's entrepreneurism comes from our genes, but it's such a myth. I'm learning through these conversations that so often it's a reaction to something in your childhood or a survival instinct. I used to clean pubs at the age of 13 just so that I could earn my own money because I just craved that independence. Was that the case for you? Where do you think that drive came from? Yeah, I mean, things were definitely fought at home. Like, we were always, you know, lurching from one slight financial disaster to another. And, and there was definitely that constant threat. You know, my father would come home looking tired and grey and always, you know, there's always worry, basically. So I think that definitely shaped me. And, and my brother and sister were not at all academic. They, they found life more challenging than I did. And so it felt like I was, I was the only one who was going to do anything. And I think I felt a bit of that burden... Definitely, but definitely that financial independence because, you know, my, lots of my family were rolling in it. They had, you know, comparatively lots of cash, but we were like the kind of paupers of the family. Obviously nothing compared to loads of people. We had, you know, we had a house over our head and we were, but, you know, that, that's definitely the memory I had. So I think that financial independence was definitely kind of important. I think as well, we just don't get taught how to be entrepreneurial at any stages of our life maybe if we teach it more if we could debunk this sort of myth that only certain people are blessed with this entrepreneurial spirit I know that growing up we didn't have this type of education what was your education like and did you get to do much cooking at school well I mean I mean first of all when I started out kind of doing my own thing I think almost entrepreneurism was frowned upon it was this kind of American you know charlatans would come over and start their own businesses you know it kind of was frowned upon a bit wasn't it It took me 10 years to spell it yeah right (laughs) so yeah I went to I went to a fiercely academic school actually and definitely you know we were supposed to be heavy hitting bankers or lawyers or politicians and I, I definitely felt that kind of weight of expectation and I wasn't very good at school I mean I really didn't like exams I found school quite grey and I don't think I fitted in that well you know I like hanging out with grown-ups not kind of my peers I think but everyone feels a bit of a fish out of water frankly but um I think definitely cooking was not an acceptable career that much is true I think that our school motto was get women out of the kitchen which I find really (laughs) extraordinary because for me food and cooking it's, it's a survival skill at its most basic form. If you cannot cook, you cannot survive. And, you know, this thing of ready meals and farming out food to someone you don't know who, who basically makes a profit from producing food is an extraordinary thing to me because, you know, by eating well, you're feeding your physical health and your mental health. Mm. And by feeding your family well, you're, you're nurturing them and giving them both physical and mental health. And that survival skill. So why would you, why would you, you know, give that out to someone else? So the idea of, you know, women sitting prettily in their kitchen, it, it's kind of a weird thing. I, I feel it's not just a feminist statement, but it's a kind of, it's, it's man's statement. To be able to feed yourself and feed the people around you is such an empowering thing. You were obviously a very intelligent, driven young person, but your father encouraged you to go for a more conventional route. You became a VAT consultant, which, (laughs) what was this time of your life like? I can only imagine. I mean, I remember, so so, um, I was supposed to go to Oxford, and my father said, oh, look, you 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 can go for an interview for this scholarship this big, you know, multinational accountancy firm, and it'll just be good practice for your Oxford interview. 
And I was like, really? Um, okay, because I was, you know, I was did. I always towed the line. My sister was wild. My brother had a lot of issues. So I was always the one who towed the line. So I was like, fine, went to do my interview. I was literally so disinterested in getting this scholarship to be a VT consultant for four years that they must have thought I was as cool as a cucumber. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, she's great. Let her have it. And then I remember my first day, nine months of my you know, year off, I remember feeling like a prison had just slammed around me. I mean, it was miserable. And I think, yeah, the, I didn't get on with my immediate team. It was a disaster, let's face it. It was a totally unmitigated disaster. At that time, I was rebelling late in life, so having been really good all the way through my teens, at 18, I fell in love with my best friend's older brother, who was very, very bright. He was so bright, in fact, that he had to smoke a lot of marijuana to just keep himself <laughs> down on everyone else's level. I am not that bright, so my head became this permanent fog for eight months while I was going out with him. Um, and that wasn't very good for VAT consultancy either. No, I, I can imagine. Yeah. You would have been the coolest VAT person in training ever. <laughs> but I think there's such a blessing that we now live in this world now where you can make money doing lots of different things, not just the nine to five or working in an office, the traditional paths. It's so different, isn't it, to our parents' generation. And we have the privilege now, although I know in some ways it makes it harder for young people as we have every opportunity open to us. And we're encouraged more than anything to follow the passions. And that can be so overwhelming too. I especially see it with people in their 20s. They're expected to know exactly what they're meant to be doing with their lives. And I want to tell the young not to worry that there isn't a one career path anymore. Um, what's inspiring is to see the older generation now starting up businesses, following their passions. I read that your father is now a furniture maker. Has this made him happier than when you saw him in your childhood? I mean, what was hilarious was that he was told to be an engineer because he was good with his hands. And it was, it was really lame advice. He, and he, you know, became, he basically ended up doing something he hated. And then in his 50s, started making furniture. And you know, he's never looked back. In fact, we're designing my current kitchen at the moment. He's building all the staircases in my new house, age 79. But he still tried to make me go down the same path, of like pushing me. And I think he didn't do that in a bad way, but I, I think that's absolutely true. In your 20s, I look at young people, and it's terrifying. And I remember being in my 20s, just thinking, how on earth are you supposed to know what you're going to do with your life? Of course you can't know. I mean, some people are lucky. A very few people mm. wake up when they're born and think, I'm going to be a doctor. And that's mm. brilliant. Mm. But, but I don't think that's the majority of people. And I think it's trial and error. And I definitely spent my 20s bumbling around, failing at almost everything I did. And just, you know, slowly, slowly, by processes of elimination, working it out. And I think that is, that's, the, that's the journey of life, isn't it? The exciting thing about today is, as you say, it's not so conventional. So you can mm -hmm. keep doing that you know, into your 40s and 50s and 60s. I love it when I read about someone who starts painting in their 60s and starts becoming an amazing sculptor or, yeah. or starting to write novels in your 70s. Yeah. I mean, that's exciting. It helps, doesn't it, if you look at your life in this cliche way that we call the journey. But if you say that you're going to be excellent at what you're going to do at 80, then there's so much less pressure, isn't there, on you on your 20s and 30s? Yeah. You know, that, you know it, it, there's something to be there. I'm, I'm going to be 90, remember, you know, doing this. I, I, I've got that path. So after leaving school and finishing your VAT consultancy role, you went to university. What was that time like in your life? Not great. University was not great. It was kind of slightly checkered by, you know, a few disasters in the family. 
My grandmother killed herself. My twin brother became schizophrenic. There was a lot of shit going down. So I think, I think I was very far from home. I was at this really cool university in Edinburgh. It was supposed to be amazing. Everyone was having fun around me. And I was kind of just feeling very stranded and kind of lost. I think, fortunately for me, being an extrovert, you know, I sought help. I kind of knew. I remember sitting on a loo once and thinking, reading something on like mental health. And you know, there's a tick box, and I was like, hmm, tick, 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 tick. Oh, maybe this is why I'm feeling so miserable. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. but, but you know, I, I was the type of person who was you know, always trying to solve stuff. So I went and sought help. And in those days, you could get good help. So you know, after a few trial and errors, I found this incredible therapist who you know, I saw for three years periodically. But you know, my first conversation with him was, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to have sessions until you don't need me anymore, which is quite a scary thing to hear, but that's exactly what therapy should be. You know, it should be a process whereby, in the end, mm -hmm. you don't need it. What I really worry about today is that framework seems to be completely ripped out of society, and all I read about is people you know, in their 20s struggling with mental health, and there being absolutely no support for them. And when I look back at my life and how much it helped me and what I've done with my life, and then you think of all these poor young people who don't have that. What a waste. I mean, it's such a waste. It seems such a small investment to turn so many lives around. I recently spoke to Asma Khan for this podcast, and she had the same experience. She couldn't find her purpose and her passion for life. And she used this beautiful analogy of a tree in winter feeling hollow and that she would never bloom again. And then she discovered her passion for cooking and empowering women, and it gave her the value, the self-worth, the, the purpose, and it brought her to life. And we don't talk about this enough, how much depression can be linked with not having a purpose. All of us need something to work to, to get up in the morning, to keep on this journey. And it doesn't have to be this huge thing, but I know that we'll go there later. You had a sliding doors moment in your life when you met Clarissa Dick, and write at a fashion show and your life was never the same again. Could you just share that wonderful story? Yeah, no, that was amazing. That was great. So obviously she was one of the two fat ladies, which I, which I watched because, you know, I you know, started cooking when I was six. I just loved food. So we're in this fashion show. It was Barber and I was in a Barber bikini, which I cannot believe I didn't keep hold of. <laughs> um, and she was obviously not in a Barber bikini, but, um, but backstage, we chatted a lot when we were having our makeup done. And she was a hero of mine because, you know, it's all I knew about her was that at 21, she was the youngest female mum to the bar. You know, she was this brilliant barrister. And then, you know, down through the courses of her life, she'd given it all up and had turned to cooking. So it's like, this is someone with a brain who's now a cook, which wasn't what I had understood about cooking, you know, from school and that academic kind of pressure that I kind of inherited, um, the chip, I guess. And um, she was just amazing. I mean, she looked at me as if I was an idiot, frankly. She was just like, so hang on a sec, you love food, you love cooking, so why aren't you doing that for a living? Like, like, it's like, how did this not occur to you before? So I felt quite stupid. But she really sweetly got me onto a waiting list of a cookery school in Ireland called Ballymaloo, which is an extraordinary place. It's so ahead of its time, where they do workshops on sustainability, they grow lots of vegetables, they teach you about soil fertility, about you know, the fact that the growing 
and transportation of food uses more energy and water than any other industry. It's so important to everything we do in life. And um, it was just the most wonderful time. And for the first time, pretty much in over a decade, I finally felt I was at home, that I knew what I was going to do, which was pretty astounding. So you just needed that sort of role model or permission. Clarissa was this, as you said, a very intelligent woman who had been brave enough to not take that conventional path and followed her passion at the risk that it wouldn't make her maybe the same money. And I think also great for any young people listening is to learn from you tonight, as I think you're obviously very intelligently brilliant at it, that it's okay to ask for help. Do you agree? I love asking for help. Yes. I mean, my husband would say I ask too many people, too many things. He's like, what about listening to yourself? But now I think it's really important to ask for help and to talk to people and, and, and get advice because there are so many people who've been through life and, and different experiences and they will always have some light to shed. And you won't use all of it, but you will definitely use some of it. And I think you know, it's incredibly empowering when you meet people who are prepared to give you a bit of their time and, you know, how else are you supposed to navigate life? Yeah, it's just, you know, it's a tricky thing. So, yeah, definitely, I think asking for help is a good thing. And then you were sent on this new path. What happened once you left cookery school? Well, I, you know, I basically didn't look back from then on because I, you know, I, from the age of 18 when I was kind of left school and even before, even at school, things had started to feel falling apart. You know, I'd started to feel pretty gloomy at school. So I'd, I'd felt, you know, my A-levels were not great. I, screwed at Oxford, you know, there were basically a catalogue of, of, of very clear showcases for why I was crap, you know, and, and so I'd carried that round with me for quite a long time, and then suddenly I was doing this thing that I loved, and I was just like, holy smoke, you know, this is, this is it. And so straight after cooking school, I went out and made cheese on a cheese farm in West Cork with this incredible family, the Fergusons, who make gabine cheese. So I was making cheese in the mornings, and then I was making sourdough bread in the afternoons, and I had a kind of stall with a girl called Claudia McKenna, who's, who's another cook, who I met on Ireland. We run around Ireland kind of selling sourdough bread and pastas, and it was just brilliant because it was what I loved. I, you know, it's just when you, when you do what you love, it just feels so right. That path of least resistance we were talking about, it just, it just, you know, everything falls away and you're just like, brilliant, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And tell me about then your trip to Mexico, because it was that moment in your life that you had this huge, deep, deep impact on you. Could you tell us about it and the experience, the colours, the food, that moment? So I first went to Mexico after the VAT consultancy. So the only good thing to say about that was at the end they gave me £1,400, which was a huge amount of money, to go travelling. So off I went to Mexico because a girl from school had, had gone there and I need to study Spanish. I had no preconception of what the country was going to be like, you know, fly by the seat of my pants kind of person that I am. I just turned up there, with, having not read anything <laughs> about Mexico. Ridiculous. I mean, I just, I just discovered the food so early on. We stayed with this family in Mexico City. The mother was this amazing flame-haired British architect who loved to cook, and her kitchen was kind of floor-to-ceiling of old cookbooks. And they had a big party while we were there, and the food was just out of this world. But I didn't, I didn't recognise any of it. All the flavours were different. They were completely new. But I remember just guzzling my way around this huge table as everyone else was kind of coolly sipping tequila and looking great. I was just kind of like <laughs> stuffing my face. And it was just... And, and for that moment, you know, I spent the whole of that travels 
eating my way around the country and discovering this incredible biodiverse country of many cuisines because its regional food is so extraordinary. The ingredients change from state to state. They're defined by the geography of you know, desert and, and plain and river and ocean and rainforest and by the different peoples because even today there are 62 native Indian languages still spoken oh and which have you know, kept all these different cuisines separate and then all these incredible ingredients. So, you know, I started discovering this amazing food and I thought, right, I'll go back to London and start eating these soft corn tortillas and it'll be amazing. Yeah. And I remember, you know, age 18, coming back to London thinking, that's really weird, I, I just can't find any of this food. And I just thought about it, but I was going through that whole 20s thing of trying to work out what I was doing in my life at that stage. Um, and it wasn't until I went to cooking school, Darina Allen, the alma mater of the cooking school, was mad about Mexican food. It was very rare in those days to meet yes. anyone who didn't think that Mexican food was kind of filthy Tex-Mex. Now, not all Tex-Mex is filthy, of course, but most of the Tex-Mex <laughs> in this country was pretty filthy. And of course, Tex-Mex isn't Mexican food. It's, from, it's a cuisine of a small part of Texas. But Dorina loved Oaxaca, this wonderful region in the Central Valley of Mexico. She had great friends there. So she kind of knew where I was coming from. And then, you know, then I started working in food. And this kind of noise got louder and louder and louder. And then I was having a drink with Sam Hart, who's a wonderful entrepreneur and restaurateur, saying, look, I've got to do something next. I think I need to work in maybe Barcelona because the food's really exciting, or maybe Mexico. And he said, look, I don't know anyone in Barcelona, but I have got some friends who are about to open a cocktail wow. bar in Mexico City, and I think you should just go and work for them. So I did. I mean, four days later, I, was, I just got a job waitressing in the River Cafe. I left after a day, and I went to Mexico, and I opened a cocktail bar, and I spent a year living in Mexico City, just eating everywhere and, and, and traveling around the States and, and learning that the food from Veracruz had the influences of Europe because the Spanish arrived there first and brought the food of Sicily with them and that the food of the Yucatan was completely different and that the food of Oaxaca was different and Michoacan had these amazing mangoes and avocados and it was all so exciting and the color, as you say, the colors, the flowers, I mean, your, your flower in your hair makes me feel so happy. It feels very Mexican. <laughs> it was for you. Was it? Yes. Well, there you are. It's made me happy. Um, the, the vibrancy of Mexico, it is a nation of people who love food. So you, you get off your plane and you get into a taxi, you start talking to the taxi driver, and he will immediately start talking about what his grandmother used to make him, what state he was from, the village he comes from, the ingredients they used to do, the way they used to, very much like Italian food, like yes. always using yes, it as a simile. Of that. Although when I started talking about Mexican food, the Italians were the rudest people. I was like, yeah. Mexican food is disgusting. And I'd be like, where would you be without the tomato? Or corn for polenta? You know nothing. Um, so yes, Mexico is brilliant. And also, because of the way I grew up with food, cooking very simple, inexpensive ingredients, which is how my mother cooked, you know, a globe artichoke in season, was our supper. But mm. my father would then burn the butter with salt on it, with flaky sea salt, and then we would dip granary bread into the butter, oh and dip goodness. our artichokes in, and then at the end we'd take off all the hairs and cut up our hearts and dunk them in the butter, and that was, that was supper. It was so simple, but it was so delicious. And that's how the food of Mexico is. You know, simple, but incredible ingredients. And that passion for inexpensive ingredients, but just cooked so beautifully. I mean, mm. I just find that addictive. Wherever you go, in India or China, or, yeah. you know, those countries which are steeped in, in good food. 
God, is anyone else hungry at all? <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love to ask you about MasterChef. What inspired you to take part as it set you up on this whole new trajectory in your life? Could you tell me more about this? Well, it was, I mean, it was a fluke thing because I had got back from Mexico. I was so broke because I'd spent two years um, producing a cookbook called Soup Kitchen for homeless charities, which kind of which I just cared about. I, you know, I met this amazing girl when I was running a shop and we kind of conceived the idea together. And we started asking kind of famous chefs to donate recipes and we were very, very lucky. I strongly believe in life that until you take your first step forward, you'll never know how you get somewhere. But once you take your first step, things just open up and happen to enable you to move forward. So we started doing this cookbook and, you know, I bumped into Jamie Oliver in a food shop. And then I do. bumped into someone who knew Gordon Ramsay. You My know, I just good, yeah. kind of kept, these things kept happening. And I just think life is like that. If you're open to stuff and you've got the courage to just go for it, things just happen that help you along the way. Not always, obviously, because there were lots of failures. But I do think that's true. So anyway, I wrote this cookbook. I lived in Mexico. I was stony broke. So I was kind of cooking for families and looking after children and doing anything really to make some money. But meanwhile, I thought maybe I could be a food writer. Maybe that's what I'll do. And I was kind of reading these food magazines. And it was the first year of MasterChef. And they had all these adverts and things like the BBC Good Food magazine. You know, do you want to be the next Nigella or, or Jamie? I was kind of like... But something must have made me, you know, yeah. fill out the application form, which I did. And then obviously didn't tell anyone about it because it was a bit embarrassing. And then I was cooking for this family in Suffolk and I got this, this call up, you know, going, it's the last day of the auditions on Friday, but we really liked your, your thing you filled out. Can you come? And so, you know, the family were delighted. They were like, yeah, go for it. You know, just cook us lunch and then off you go. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I had to, you know, get the picnic ready. And then I got into my 2CV and I put my foot on the accelerator and I started bombing down to London. And then I realized that I was going to hit rush hour traffic. And I remember in those days, it was, you could speak on your phone and drive. Um, it was a long time ago. So I was like doing this, bombing down my TCV, going, Dad, Dad, I'm going to get it stuck. I'm going to get it stuck. And it's like, look, Royston, there's a train at Royston, the 326. If you can get that, I think you'll be there in time for the audition. So I remember literally my TCV could go around on two wheels. You know, so I was like cramming down the corner, screeching into the car park, dropping my prepared dish that I had to bring in for my audition all over the platform, scooping back in and jumping onto the train as it left the platform to get to my audition time. And by the time I got to the audition, I was so psyched up, I didn't stop talking. I mean, literally, I talked so fast. And they must have just thought, holy shit, who is this girl? But they basically said, in fact, Karen, I met the other day, the producer, he did a lot of the... She was like, you were the only person who I've auditioned in the eight years that I did it, going, okay, you're in, whatever, just go in. You're too mad, go in. <laughs> <laughs> what, what a journey. I mean, I, I don't actually know how to even picture or think about the, the idea of cooking under pressure, under TV screens and people working out that you're on there and the dishes. And I know you, it's not live, is it? But what was the actual experience life? I know Frank and I always talk about it because I'm, we always laugh, you know, what would you be like on MasterChef? And I'm sure all of you have had that conversation. But how did it actually feel? And what was it like after winning? So, I mean, it was, it was so terrifying. I mean, yeah. I've never done anything so terrifying in my entire life. So the first day you walk in, 
I was a bit cocky because I didn't really watch television and I just didn't really know what it was. And I remember I was doing headstands in the changing room, being a real dick. Um, and, then, um, and then, you know, suddenly we were put into the room with all the kind of hobs and everything. And then John and Greg came out and they're like, right, you've got 30 minutes to cook the best mashed potato of your life. Go! You know, and the, all these huge cameras started going wheeled out. And I was just like, oh my... You know, my hands started shaking. And you will see blue pastas in the early stages of MasterChef because your hands shake the entire time because <laughs> it's so terrifying. And I made really lumpy mashed potato in that um, round, but everyone else did as well, which was my saving grace. And I remember just saying to John, look, I know it's really lumpy, but just taste the flavour, taste all that butter and the seasoning, and you know that it tastes good. Than and, I, and he kind of, anyway, I went through that audition. It was quite <laughs> rocky. If anyone, did, I don't know if, I, you said you'd seen me on MasterChef. Yes, yes. I mean, it was a long time ago. We had a very small audience in those days. But I mean, anyone who saw me doing that saw it was a kind of up and down journey. It was not all successes. But yeah, I somehow, I somehow, by hook or by crook, after quite a few upsets, I think they just knew how completely obsessed I was with food. Greg and I still bump into each other. I mean, I, I still talk to them a bit, both of them. But Greg just laughs at me because they introduced this heat very last minute because they worked out they only had three cooking stations for the finals or the semis or whatever. So they had to get rid of someone. So they suddenly had to introduce <laughs> this new thing where you had to speak for two minutes on why you should go through to the next round. And I kind of have this awful memory of like on my hands and knees just going, but I am food, like this. And Greg <laughs> still takes a piss out of me, still like about this nutty girl who was just going, I am food, you know. So, um, but I did get, I did, you know, and I, you know, I still remember them saying that, you know, you'd won because I was this really efficient girl who was in the finals with me. He was brilliant, everything. But she did take less risks, and she played it too safe in her finals. So even though she was much more accomplished and measured, yes. that she just she kind of stymied herself by just playing it too safe. And I think she probably should have won. But I remember when they said, you know, you've won. And it just, I remember, like, the air being sucked out of my lungs, you know, like someone had just kind of punched me. Because it was literally... And I always well up when I talk about this moment. It's ridiculous. <laughs> because it was the first time in over 10 years that I'd yes. actually been good at something and someone had said, do you well know what? Done well you. done you. You know, it's still ridiculous. Oh, I, you know. gosh. <laughs> Not at all. It's so lovely that it means still so much to you with everything that you've built. And talking about what you've built, you still had this underlying passion, though, for Mexican food, still burning away. And then you met your business partner-to-be, Mark Selby, who you travelled around Mexico with and that led you to found your first business, your restaurant, Oaxaca. Could you tell us about how Oaxaca came to be? Well, we had had a mutual friend at university who put us in touch, and we met in a pub one day. You know, he had a few food ideas that he wanted to kind of look into. We were kind of mulling them over. And at this stage, you know, I'd won MasterChef, and I'd been cooking with Sky Gingell at Peacham Nurseries, um, which was wonderful, Amazing. You know, seasonal. And I was learning through MasterChef. I, you know, I read. John told us all, John Turow told us all just to read and read and read. So the six weeks of that competition, I spent every spare hour poring over Jane Grigson and Elizabeth David and, and just learning stuff I just didn't know about. And then I went to work for Skye, who is one of the most extraordinary cooks. I mean, her food is so incredible. And so I was in this completely amazing journey of learning about seasonal British food, but then she had this Middle Eastern flair and her Aussie roots. 
but there was no Mexican food in Britain. So it was very hard to hang on to how incredible the food was when there was nothing there. Yeah. And it's quite hard to keep that faith when all you see around you is you know, cheap Tex-Mex and nothing else. But then Mark had said to me, well, you know, I've seen this kind of quite interesting burrito concept. And I was just, and it was suddenly just sparked this. And I was just like, forget burritos. I mean, we could go to Mexico together. I can show you some really, really amazing food. And, and it's got, you know, very... so we went together and we, we did this incredible. I mean, we ate so much food on that trip. It was ridiculous. <laughs> it's quite weird working in the food industry because there are times, I know it doesn't look like I'm greedy, but I am really greedy. And, um, but there are times when you've eaten so much food that it's almost torturous to eat more. You're just like, I can't go on. It's just like, no, I must go on. I must try this. I know it's going to be good. I'm going to learn from this. Anyway, we had this great time. And then we took a year to find a restaurant. It was pre the recession. No one wanted to take a punt in those days on anyone new and experienced. It was before this whole new wave of amazing food. It was before the food revolution that had swept over the whole country and over actually lots of different parts of the world. So it was really difficult to get any landlord to take us seriously, yeah. which was good in a way, because you know, when we finally found this really ridiculous kind of Irish you know, pub in a basement of this kind of place in Covent Garden, it was, you know, it was way bigger than we wanted, but it's literally the first place we could actually have after months looking. So we went in there. I think straight away I knew that I wanted it to be sustainable. I talked to lots of NGOs, you know, there were amazing engineers in those days that could tell you how to find organic farmers. We prototyped kind of glass crushers so that you could recycle your glass more easily. Amazing. Um, we were the second restaurant in the UK to recycle our food waste after Arthur Potts Dawson, who was doing it in King's Cross. It was just really fun to think that you could create a business that just wove sustainability into its DNA. And it was just always really important to me. I, I just think, I mean, Henry, Henry and I are great friends, Henry Dimbleby, and I... I'm so with him on that. I mean, you sit back and look at governments, successive governments, with their ridiculous short-term thinking mm -hmm. and this total lack of ability to see any long-term benefit of what they're building for the nation or for people or for the planet. And you think, but yes, through business, you can really shape things and you can prove to people that you can weave a sustainability into your business model and still make money. And so I think... I felt that was really exciting, and it has, has been really exciting from the word go, and it's just been part of something we do. You know, we've always had, you know, about 40% of our menus vegetarian, you know, stuff like that. It's, it's great because not only is it good to eat vegetables, but it means people can afford the food. Because the other thing was that I really wanted everyone to be able to afford coming to Oaxaca. Yes. Because, you know, in Mexico, everyone eats well. It does, it's not just the rich people. And in Britain, we had this ridiculous thing where, you know, oh, well, if you're rich, you can eat good food. Which is bollocks, you know. Cook beans at home or lentils and some rice and put some spices in it, and it's a feast. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, because... We'd spent so many decades losing the, the knowledge and the skills to cook. We've lost the knowledge to cook cheaply but incredibly well. And for me, Oaxaca had to be that very egalitarian. Anyone could come and eat our tacos and eat good food. 
What was the journey, though, like, and I can only imagine, scaling to 25 restaurants, as this is quite phenomenal, and you must have such a sense of pride when you look, at, you know, going through London and seeing your restaurant. But just dabbling in hospitality recently, where we've launched our second premises with Dear Lottie, and the kitchen side of it and the hospitality side of it, and I naively thought it was the same as retail, I am now very much knowing that hospitality is one of the hard industries that you can get into what has it been like actually scaling something that is you know notoriously difficult to run I think it's definitely tough scaling I think you know if anything just going from one restaurant to two was the hardest because you open one restaurant and you've got this vision and this passion and yes. your team is small and you're like a family and you're all running for the same thing and then the second you open a second one you've immediately spread yourself thin. Yeah. And, you know, how do you keep that p passion for what you do? I think MasterChef was a really good, you know, because it was so petrifying. It was also then petrifying, you know, opening our first restaurant was just ridiculous. I was just like, what am I doing? You know, I had so little experience and, and nor did Mark. But we did have this kind of total passion for what we were doing. Like Mexican food is healthy, it's vibrant. The, the pre-Hispanic, the pre so the indigenous Mexican diet is based on a holy trinity of ingredients, corn, chilies and beans. And that is a complex, perfect diet. It gives you all the nutrition you need. And then there's the wild herbs and the tomatoes and the avocados and the greens and, you know, the fruits and the everything, you know, added to that and the vanilla and the cacao and the spices. But, you know, that, that perfect diet, you know, we just wanted to make people realise that this kind of unhealthy, greasy, cheesy thing wasn't it. So we were on a kind of almost evangelical mission, which definitely helped. And, and we had great backers. So we've got the same backers that we always have. I, I like to think we're still independent because we are exactly the same people we started with. We're not owned by venture capital. We're owned by these, these, these wonderful guys who backed us all from the word go who believe in a long-term company that looks after its people. And so we invest a huge amount in the training of our staff. And, and for me, I was really scared about growing. You know, my peers in the cooking world work at, you know, the River Cafe or Morrow, or they work for much smaller groups and the menu changes more frequently. And what I was doing in the early days felt terrifying. Mm. And I spent you know, nights and nights wondering whether I'd sold out or... And yet now when I look at the company we've created, what I f find is most kind of fills me with pride is, which I didn't expect, is the people we take along with us. So, you yeah. know, we've got 1,400 people at the moment in our, in our company. Um, and we, you know, we invest in them. We see them grow. We, we, we take all sorts of kids off the street. And, you know, anyone with a passion and a, and a willingness to learn can succeed in our industry. And whether it's front of house or back of house, you can train someone. You can teach them the numbers. You can teach them how to cook. Yeah. You can teach them anything. And they can so easily grow and succeed. And, you know, we've had people who've grown, gone off and done wonderful things. And it's so inspiring, that. And my nephew, had a really tricky childhood and my sister was very worried about him and she phoned me up a few years ago he was playing truant and not going to school his father's an alcoholic they you know split up it was all quite tricky and I remember talking to Leo who is one of our chefs who's been with us for 10 years now he is so great and I was talking to him about how I was worried about my nephew he's like Tommy give him to me <laughs> Leo's from like the favelas in Brazil he's amazing <laughs> big tattooed guy with a massive heart and um and he took my nephew in 
he took him into the kitchens. And my nephew is now working in Edinburgh in our restaurants. He's been in the company for four years and he's getting his sous chef training. Um, wow. And it's just, yeah. you know, he's just, he was a troubled kid. He didn't know what he was going to do with his life. But he, he's just my nephew, all these other people, you know, and, and people who don't speak English. And we get these kids who are, come from all sorts of different areas of the world who are willing to just, you know, roll up their sleeves and just that elbow grease, you know, work their mm -hmm. way up. And we've got so many wonderful success stories with people who started washing dishes, who are now like area managers, head chefs, area chefs. And it's just so it great. It makes it all worthwhile. Yeah. So everything that you've built is doing so much more than just you, you running a business. It's changing lives. And during this time, which, you know, you, you've just sort of slightly skirted over the fact you have 25 restaurants and it's probably pretty hard work. Um, you actually had three children as well, which I can't quite believe. One of the most asked questions as a mum running a business is this work-life balance that I touched on today, which I always answer that I think it's very unhelpful this visual analogy, a balancing act that's so precarious. Um, I'd love to ask about how you see this. What are your thoughts on work-life balance and how do you actually manage it? So I think being an entrepreneur, if you're a woman, is great because although it's precarious and you don't necessarily get an even wage to begin with, it does mean you can shape your hours and you're more in control. Because I think it's tough, you know, being a woman and wanting to have a family and work. You know, in that conventional way, I, I think it would crucify me if I had to go to an office from eight till seven every day, five days a week, and not see my children. I just, I would find that so hard. And what I love about my work is, yeah, I do work bloody hard. And I'm often, you know, if I can't sleep, I think, well, I'm not going to sit around twiddling my thumbs, lying awake. I'll get up and start doing some emails or writing my column or, or something like that. So I do work at, you know, difficult hours sometimes. Not difficult, just, you know, unconventional hours. But I love the fact that I can see my kids and, you know, a lot of my food is in the kitchen. So it's cooking and, you know, I can involve them with that. And, you know, what you said rings completely true. You know, they love Oaxaca. You know, I, I'm spending all my time going around the sites and visiting people and making sure everyone's happy in the restaurants, making that the food is good. You know, and they come with me and they're making their own tacos. And it's just fun to include them in what I do, especially as they grow older. You know, when they're younger, they don't kind of know so much. But, you know, I also that whole thing of feeding children good food and, and making sure they grow up loving food. It's, all, it's just kind of quite a holistic thing. I, I just love it. And um, something you're probably very good at and, and I've got better at is delegation and being efficient. And maybe something, again, we should teach our young more about this. But, you know, I love efficiency and anything that can save me time, I'll always tell a small business to view their time as money. So if someone else can save you time so that you can focus on building something, then delegate, bite their bloody hands off. And I think we can feel such guilt, you know, not hiring a cleaner or if you need to have childcare, you need to hire the scaffolding. Being brought up by our parents' generation who didn't have this help or would see this maybe as a luxury, but actually we're busier now than ever and we're running businesses and we're doing our own marketing. And if you run your own company, it is 24-7. I heard you talk about your PA as your wife. I mean, brilliant. Well, funnily enough, I have, got, I have got my work PA here, Lucy, who is so wonderful, and she's just completely saves me all, all the time. And she'll, be, she'll absolutely know how good I am at delegating. I mean, if I can delegate anything, I will, because, frankly, as you know, 
time is just golden. So Lucy looks after a lot of stuff at work. But I did realize in my marriage and at home, juggling this craziness because, yes, it's really tough and you spend your whole life working and life is crazy. I, I began to realize that the, the wheels were seriously falling off our kind of family vehicle. And I did suddenly realize that what we lacked in our marriage was a wife who could do the things like work out when we needed to buy new school uniforms and the ballet classes and the holidays and all that kind of stuff. And we didn't have that in our family unit because we were both working like maniacs. And so someone very astutely said, you know, get someone to help you with your home admin as well. Because I didn't think it was fair to get Lucy to pick up all my rubbish family stuff. So I have someone four hours a week who does my home admin for me. And we've, we've only had lunch twice in four years, which seems extraordinary. But, um, but we speak your profession. But we speak to each other all the time. She lives, she lives in Hampshire, and she's just incredible. And I just think for lots of working women, I cannot say how brilliant that is to just have two hours a week, four hours a week, just that help to help you just deal with that admin, that home admin you have to get through. Because when you're working and creating your own business, you just don't have time for everything. I do think we've got a bit of a chip on our shoulder, women, about this whole thing of asking for help, though. Because, you know, if you go around and, you know, in the back in the days, you know, men would have PAs and all people around them and everything. And, but when women ask for help, my God, why can't you get on with it? There's something wrong with us. And the fact that you've only got 24 hours a day, you have 25 restaurants, three children, uh, yeah, you need some help. But I think it's good that we're talking about it because the more women actually say, you know what, I'm not superwoman. I have all these people who help me do what I need to do. I mean, it's ridiculous, the idea that one person is a superwoman. I mean, it's so ridiculous. And any successful person is surrounded by brilliant people who help them all the time. I mean, we have got so many brilliant people at Oaxaca. I've got this incredible girl who helps me do my guardian column. I've, you know, in every part of my life, I have people that help me and support me in doing what I do. And, you know, I love them for it, and it, it's brilliant. One of my missions alongside our partner, NatWest, is to empower women, more women into business, thanks to the Rose Report. We now know that if women started businesses at the same rate as men, there'd be 150,000 more businesses in the UK a year. And over the course of four years, that would pump £250 million into the economy. Um, you're an exceptional, cool role model. What is your experience like of being a female entrepreneur? And how can we inspire more women, do you think, to start their own business? I think that we, and I know it's not a kind of, I, some people object to these slight stereotypes, but women are much worse at believing themselves than men are. I, you know, generally speaking, a man will go, ah, oh, fine, I can do this, I'll fluke it, and it'll be fine. Whereas I find that generally, amongst, you know, a, a cross-section, that unless a woman absolutely knows, she knows all the stuff and feels that she's capable, only then will she put herself forward for a job or, or, or something. Or will find lots of reasons to tell herself why she's not good enough to put herself forward. So I think we have to keep telling other women to just try and squash that instinct and just go for it. I mean, I remember when I asked for my first pay rise, this was a long time ago in a job, and I was looked at by my boss who said, but Tommy, you act as though this is a job. This is a passion. 
And I remember looking at him thinking, are you joking? I work for you. This is, this is a job. Of course it's a job. It's how I pay my bills. You know, and, it's just, and I don't think a man would have dreamt of saying that to another man. And I think that as a... You've got, and I remember talking to my girlfriends after I got this pay rise, which I then I had to go back because I was completely pulverised by this man. And then I got really mad. And I thought, no, I'm not going to accept this. And I went back and I finally got my pay rise. And then I started talking to my girlfriends, and I realized that almost all of them hadn't had a pay rise in about 10 years, or, you know, five years. This was a long time ago. And it's because they just hadn't asked for it. And I think we have to fight against that urge to, you know, because it's almost frowned upon for a woman to talk too much about money or, you know, the, the softer sex and don't worry yourself about it. You know, and it's just like, no, bugger that. You know, you've got to kind of try and demand you know, equal pay and, 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 and make yourself heard. And especially when you're starting up a business, when you're trying to get a loan or, you know, I read about Silicon Valley and how few women are the ones who get the money and, and it's also male dominated. And it just makes me cross. Well, it's you crazy. Know? It's still, you know, when Sophie and I started not on high street with some crazy 0.02%. And I think it's not even at 10% at the moment. It is still very, very weighted against women raising money. But you also have very strong views, don't you, um, about women and being mothers. And actually, the, the, well, it's going back to your maybe your former life as a VAT um, expert here, but you say something about that you can offset a chauffeur-driven limo against self-employed earnings, but not someone looking after your child. Yeah, I mean, I have arguments I mean, with my husband about this. It is nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Yeah, so um, any businessman or woman can, yeah, can get a chauffeur-driven limo to, to work, and that's offset. But, you know, if it's, you know, a young, single, working mother cannot offset any childcare, and I do think that's crazy. You know, obviously... The world is very populated. The government can't just pay for people to carry on having millions and millions and millions of children, but we still need to have a few children and, and to not then support people through that. And it is, you know, it is largely the woman who stays at home in the early months of a baby's life because that's how the kind of it's yes. carved up those roles. So it is the woman who, you know, inherits the lion's share of that work. And I know that there are conventions that are breaking that down now, and, and it's great that men are taking on more responsibility, but it's still it's definitely the woman who takes on the, the, that lion's share of childcare. And it, it's so negative for the economy. It's such a kind of mm. crazy thing not to enable women to work more because they're so bright, and especially I meet women who are already mothers who are trying to get back into work and how difficult it is for 40-year-old women to get back into work once their children are kind of go off in primary school and they've got more time suddenly. And there are all these obstacles in their way. And I just think, this is nuts. There are these bright women who are so good at multitasking. They have got so little time because <laughs> they've got all these kids running around that they are brilliant at efficiency, nail all that kind of like making use of every spare second of the day. And yet they're kind of disenabled into getting back into work. It's just, yeah. And I think so. what's so wonderful about your story is that finding your passion and purpose pulled you out those dark days and you never gave up. And you had this burning passion inside of you to keep going. And I've been on a journey and I've been through and seen friends of mine going through such tough times, unbearable times, actually. From coming through those tough times, what advice would you give someone listening? Well, you found your purpose. You found your happiness. I think it, you just have to keep looking because I do think it's really connected. So when I think about how miserable I was in my 20s, finding the thing I was passionate about 
coupled with being surrounded by an incredibly loving group of family and friends. You know, that basically cured me. So you are defined by what you do. And, you know, life is what you do. And I think um, finding that purpose is so important to the core of every one of us. And so if you haven't found it, you've just got to keep looking. And it doesn't really matter if you don't find it till you're 60. You know, it's just, you've just got to keep at it. And then in the end, you'll find it. And then you'll be happier. We're coming to the end of the interview. And I always use the analogy that running your own small business is like being on this crazy epic roller coaster. What would you say has been one of your biggest lows whilst running your business? Loads. As Loads. In. Um, As in the dip. Oh, loads, loads, loads. Yeah, loads. loads. The sick feeling. Well, I mean, you know, norovirus. So Oaxaca got norovirus a couple of years ago. It was horrendous. So norovirus is not food poisoning. It's, you know, it's a virus. And, you know, lots of restaurants get it. But our restaurant got it incredibly, you know, I mean, it hit so many of our restaurants. We made our staff ill. We made our customers ill. It hit every board sheet. It was all over the news. We had a complete plummet in people who came into our restaurants. We had always, you know, tried so hard to cook. You know, all our food was cooked from scratch. We had these wonderful suppliers. So it felt so unfair that with all the things we tried to do with our sustainability and all that as well, that this thing kind of just came and just bashed us down. But I think, actually, all the bad things that happened, there's always those silver linings. And I think we were 10 years old when it happened. And it gave us that chance to sit back. And we were very much like, OK, this has happened. Let's use this time to really assess now where we're going for the next 10 years. Because we've been on this roller coaster. And it's kind of almost caught up with us and swept us on. And actually, we've really got to use this time now to just work out where we're going for the next 10 years. And so we have really have used that, and I think, in a really positive way. And I think, you know, our business is, is just so brilliant. I'm so proud of our food. Lots of people haven't been to Oaxaca for ages because they just think, oh, it's a chain of restaurants. But then when I drag people in, they're just like, my God, this food is so delicious. And, uh, you know, I just, that, that's just so great. And the high? In the career. I in mean, the career. I mean, so, I mean, MasterChef was pretty epic. It was pretty yeah, epic. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, you know, it was, it was amazing. The, you know, the letter, the letter from the the palace saying you've got this award which was recent it was that was at christmas that i actually just thought was a hoax <laughs> i couldn't believe <laughs> that someone was actually giving me anything so going to the palace was quite special i did that um in january with my children and my parents and my husband so that was lovely congratulations too. that was really lovely well, thank you so much, Thomasina. What a privilege to hear your incredible story firsthand. It's really a story of survival, determination, and huge success. What I found so interesting about your journey is from a young age, you've been a chef and restaurateur, from cooking with your parents' friends, and you've been, this passion has been with you for so very long. Thank you so much for inspiring us all so much this evening. Your honesty and your beautiful advice. You're now definitely one of my entrepreneurial heroes, got big girl crush going on, and I cannot wait to see what you do next. So this is the part where I ask my guests to write a letter to their younger self. And this is the first live one we've ever done. It's usually just me who gets the privilege of hearing firsthand. But what a moment where we all get to share this as an audience. So thank you so much for sharing a part of your soul tonight. I hand you over to yourself. So no pressure then. <laughs> <coughs> 
I'm quite glad I'm doing this now at the end rather than at the beginning. So this is a letter to myself. Dear Tommy, I am writing to you from the future, a much happier place than where you are now, a place where you found some peace at last and a place in the world where you can contribute. I want to reassure you that it's all going to be okay. I know that you can't see the wood for the trees right now and that it feels quite desperate at times. But if you can just keep being brave and putting yourself out there, you will find a purpose to this all. All those successful people that you look at in amazement, trying to fathom how they got where they are today, well, guess what? They got there in exactly the same way you're going about it. Some of them in a fast way, some a bit slower, but all on the journey that life puts in our way that we choose to jump onto or not. It takes time, none of it happens overnight, so just jump onto it, Tommy. Jump on wholeheartedly and try to enjoy the ride because there isn't going to be another one in this world at least. The more you go with it, the more you'll learn. And the more you learn, the more you will love what you're doing. Each time you feel your heart tremor and your courage fail you, just grit your teeth and keep going because I promise you it does get easier. You think you are weak, but please believe me when I say there is an amazing strength in your core that will keep growing the more you tap into it. You are not damaged goods, even though life has been tough. But just because you haven't worked out what it is you want to do with your life yet, it doesn't mean that you won't. You are full of passion and drive and of an unflinching desire to make the world a little bit better. Hold on to these things because they will be the things that ultimately make you feel happy and fulfilled. Nurture your passions and believe in them you are much more creative than you give yourself credit for. Sit in that creative place for longer and let it fill yourself. It might not feel proper or conventional, but that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile and that you can't make a success of it later on. Promise me that you will be kinder to yourself. You can't solve all the world's ills and neither are you responsible for some of the hardest things that you've been through. A human being is like a blade of grass, strong, a force for good, a giver of life, and immensely adaptable. But if you put that blade of grass under too much pressure, in the end, it will snap. Nurture the blade, water it, and be kind to it, and it will keep growing and developing, and it will end up feeding many more things around it. Some days are harder than others, Know that this is the case for everyone, everyone around you. But for every low moment that you have, you will be amazed by the moments of pure joy you get from life, from your friends and your family, and from the times that you sit around and break bread or break a beat with those that you love. Our mother, your mother, keeps telling you to stop worrying so much and just enjoy life a bit more. Listen to her because she is right. Forget about what people think or what you think people are thinking. Live with passion, dress up, dance like no one is watching. These are attributes that people will love about you, not judge you for. Stand out if you want to be. Be fearless. Have fun. We only get one chance at this life, so live it to the full with more faith and more confidence in yourself. Lastly, read more books. One day you will have beautiful children of your own and they will suck up huge amounts of your time. You will give it willingly, but in the meantime, make the most of being answerable to no one. Travel more, read more, 
especially before the time of the internet, and experience as much as you can. Good luck and have fun. <laughs> we listened to uh, Destiny's Child Survivor before you came on, and um, that's what I just feel after this whole story. And I'm sure you all agree, you're a complete survivor, and you are—you know—we need more people like you for not only our young to look up to, but for me to be able to look up to someone. And I just can't thank you enough for just being so honest and open with us all. Um, yeah, you're just beautiful. Thank you so oh, much. Thank you. you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, NatWest, again for sponsoring this podcast. It's great to partner with an organisation that believes in empowering people in business. That's why they developed the NatWest Business Hub. It's full of information, tips and insights to help business owners meet their goals. Go to natwestbusinesshub.com to get started. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conversations of Inspiration. I want as many people as possible to believe that they can build a business doing what they love. So could I ask a favour? If you like what you're listening to, would you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider? It will help others find this podcast and may just be the inspiration they need to follow their dreams. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown You will find that all the things that I have said Will come to when you are lying in your bed And if you want your friends to come